you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Ruth. There we resume our study this morning. We find ourselves in the final chapter of Ruth, in Ruth chapter 4. As you know, if you've been with us or if you've even listened on the internet, we've been making our way through this book, and we've come to what is the final chapter in the book itself. Very brief book, as I've told you many times, that's kind of situated between Judges and First Samuel. And as I've also said many times, it bears repeating here, that the context that's given us in Ruth, that is in the period of the Judges, we find that out in chapter 1. So you have this little vignette, the story that takes place in between the period of the Judges, which we know to be a very, very wicked period in the history of Israel, where, of course, the refrain that runs through it is, each did what was right in his own eyes, not so dissimilar from how we see culture today. And then the period of, of, of the kings, or at least Samuel, who becomes the last judge and then anoints Saul and then, and then David, and then we see the period of the kings in Israel. But what, again, one of the main takeaways of the story is you have this story that sits amid this period of time where there is utter brokenness and evil and wickedness. And how will people live their lives when confronted with hardship, with struggle, with trial, with all the things that we are accustomed to dealing with as human beings? Ruth asked the basic question of how will we deal with those things? What will we do? How will we carry ourselves when it's easy to abandon what is right? Will we do that? Or when it's hard to stick to what is right, will we take the hard path? Because the question is constantly before us to do what is easy or to do what is right. And sometimes doing what's right is easy, but quite often it's not. And so this morning we find Boaz doing what is right, even though it's not necessarily the easiest pathway forward. And we find Ruth and Naomi trying to do what is right in a culture that makes it exceedingly difficult now, just reading back into what we know about the judges, and a culture that makes it exceedingly difficult for women, for one, and for women to do what is right for two. And yet you have it here. And so as I've said to you before, this becomes a major encouragement to you and me because sometimes it feels so overwhelming that it almost feels impossible to do the right thing. And yet we have Bo Boaz and Ruth who say, actually, it's quite possible in fact, it is not only possible, it's preferable, and it's not only just preferable, it honors God. And so the question then Ruth asks is the same question that we asked through the pastoral epistles. It's the same question we asked when we were going through Daniel and Lamentations. And every book we've gone through at the chapel is what does it look like for us to be faithful Christians in our world? How does it show the world Christ or how do we show the world Christ by our lives? Well, one word, faithfulness. And it's not easy, and it won't be. And in fact, sometimes faithfulness will be quite costly. But we have to decide in keeping with the word that that cost is worth paying. Well, this morning, we're looking at Ruth chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6. And so this morning, without further delay, let's turn our attention to the Word of God, Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant Word. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here, 
And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is one beside you, for there is no one rather beside you to redeem it. And I come after you. And he said, that is the other redeemer, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So is the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Pray with me. Father, Your Word is before us. And I pray that you use it now to help us to grow, to be strengthened, to be renewed, and to stand firm in the truth. Transform us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. When we think about the law of God, right, it's it's a beautiful thing. But when we also think about the law of God, it's a terrifying thing, and it's meant to be both. It's absolutely meant to be both. It is meant to be beautiful in that it's a revelation of who God is. You can't look at God's law without seeing an image of God's own righteous character. We see the law and we see a reflection of God's righteousness, which is a major part of His communicable, that's what they're called, His communicable traits. Righteousness is one of those. How do we know God is righteous? We see it in His Word, but we see it in the law. But the law is also, it's sobering, isn't it? It's exacting. The amount of perfection that the law requires is something that is meant to make us sobered and humbled. Because as we look at the law, it makes demands of us. It shows us who God is. It shows us His perfection. But there's something about the law that we have to reconcile There's this aspect of the law that has to be reconciled with everything that we know, and that's the notion that redemption is a part of God's law. So when we think about the idea of redemption, and remember, redemption, a strong biblical word that is an accounting word, simply means to buy back or to buy something. When we think about redemption, we need to understand that redemption is before the law, it's in the law, it's after the law, it undergirds the law. And how do we know that? Well, for starters, in Exodus 20, right when we're about to get the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 chapter, or Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, for I am the Lord your God who bought you out of Egypt and delivered you from the house of slavery. Right at the very beginning, what precedes the law for God, what precedes God's promise, what precedes God's expectations of the people is this notion that God Himself bought them back, that God Himself brought them out of slavery, that God Himself put them in a position to then go and receive His law and live in relationship with Him. So we understand then that redemption is not inconsistent with the law. Redemption doesn't stand outside the law. It embodies the character and covenant of God that we see expressed in the law. 
Because sometimes we can approach that, well, redemption is simply God's plan B. We couldn't keep the law, so the next plan was for God to redeem His people. Unfortunately, that doesn't square with Scripture. Because when Paul is writing to the Ephesians church, when he says, you were chosen in Him when? After you failed to keep the law? No. When you looked at the law and saw that it was really, really perfect and exacting and you were worried about it? No. You were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. So God's act of redeeming has been His plan from the very beginning. What did the law do? What does the law do? It shows us who God is. It shows us how much we need Him, and it points us to the one who redeems us, which is exactly why in Luke chapter 24, when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with the disciples, He tells them, all the Scriptures testify to me. Every single act of redeeming in the Old Testament is looking forward to Jesus for the ultimate act of redemption. And so when we think about the law, beloved, we don't, we don't have to make these ideas of redemption and law-keeping mutually exclusive. What do the redeemed do? We seek to keep the law. But the redeemed understand that our worth, our value, is not bound up in how well we can keep the law. It's bound up in Christ. But as those who love Christ, the law is a beautiful thing. And we see this in Ruth and Boaz. Boaz values the law. He's not trying to skirt the law. He doesn't make light of the law. He doesn't try to minimize the law. He keeps it. But he does it in a gracious, loving manner. When we see, when we look at the book of Ruth, uh, we see this type of redemption that I've been talking about on a little bit of a smaller scale. But this smaller scale redemption points to something much greater than itself. When you think about marriage and you think about land and there's a clause for redemption, why does the clause for redemption exist? Why did it exist? And I'm going to read it to you in just a minute in the Old Testament. Because God understands humanity and those of us who are made in His image, who, are, who live under the curse of sin we, the sin, we lose our way. We get lost. We get sidetracked in the wilderness. And we need a way to come back. There's not a soul sitting in this room that can hear my voice who hasn't been sidetracked in the wilderness again and again, who hasn't needed a way to come back. What is that way? The redeeming love of Jesus Christ. That beacon, that light, that city on a hill, that when, we're, when we venture out into the darkness, walking in the shadow, or the valley of the shadow of death, where is that, that honing beacon that draws us back? It's the redemption of Christ that calls us back to the way. And so that when we are looking at Ruth, we get some insight into God's character what is God's purpose in life? His, his goal is He's not looking for ways to crush. He's looking for ways to restore. Isaiah says it so beautifully in his prophecy. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. Beloved, if, if we lived convinced of that, if we really lived convinced that that is actually true, that the Lord does long to be gracious to us, does it change our views of God? Does it change the way that we live our lives? Let's hope so. Because God is our God through redemption. And here's the beautiful thing. It's always been His intention. 
So with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea for us to see here, and it's this, that redemption is a provision of law to rescue and restore. That redemption is a provision of law to rescue and restore. When you look at the Old Testament, you see multiple promises made. And the book of Hebrews does a great job of giving us what is the ultimate answer to the promises of God that we find littered throughout the Old Testament? It's Jesus, right? Like, God's, God has an amen and a yes and an amen to those promises, and it comes through Christ. And so when we're looking at redemption, the worker of, uh, we're looking at Jesus, rather, who is the worker of redemption, so redemption being a work of Christ, we understand that redemption is a lawful provision that allows rescue and restoration to occur. If Ruth were to teach us nothing else and just taught us that, it would be worth the book. That redemption is a lawful provision that allows rescue and restoration to occur. And so when we're looking through the book of Ruth, we're, we're thinking through its precepts, we can't miss this idea. What does it mean to be redeemed? What does redemption look like? And Ruth gives us a smaller picture, a little microcosm of what Israel needed. What did Israel need? Israel in the period of the judges was in a bad way. What did she need? She needed to be bought back. She had sold herself to other lovers again and again and again and again and had lost her identity and was identifying herself with the world around her, which is why she had idolatry, which is why they were dealing with child sacrifice, which is why they devalued life. When you hear those things, it begins to sound familiar, eerily similar, in fact. What needed to happen a grand redemption needed to occur, to occur. And so when we look at Ruth as just this beautiful microcosm of this idea, Ruth needed to be redeemed. Naomi needed to be redeemed. The land needed to be redeemed. Israel needed to be redeemed. And so Ruth is giving us a great story, but it's pointing us to something much larger than Ruth and Elimelech's family. And so when we look at the text, we come to it now. Boaz had gone up to the gate sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. It's interesting here in the Hebrew, that turn aside, friend, the word friend there, it's a very obscure word in the Hebrew. In fact, you could literally translate it, turn aside, whoever you are. That's kind of what the way the Hebrew reads, turn aside, so-and-so, and it's interesting, we're going to come to this in just a second, why they go to such great lengths to not name this character, a name that they would have known. That's, we'll get there in just a second. So when you see this, Boaz goes up to the gate and he sat down there. So this is not a mere formality for Boaz. Boaz is doing the right thing. How do you settle business in the ancient world? You go to the gate you go to the gate where judgments are made. You go to the gate where there are plenty of passerbys and witnesses. You go to the gate because that's where the seat of judgment is. And so you go there to settle disputes. You go there for matters of interpretation about the law. You go there to settle land claims. That is where you go to do business. So Boaz goes to the place where he's supposed to go to handle business. Why, why this little tidbit? Because the text is going to great lengths to tell us that Boaz did the right thing rightly. He did the right thing the right way. 
that he wasn't underhanded, that he's not doing anything in the dark. Remember, he's not taking advantage of Ruth in the dark. He's not doing underhanded, shady deals. He's dealing everything in public and in the plain sight of all. Why? Because a righteous man has nothing to hide. And a man who's doing it righteously has nothing to fear from onlookers. This is not to say that righteous people are always extolled in our culture. We know they're not. But I'm saying that righteous people live in the open, right? They don't hide. Boaz is doing that. And so he's seeking to be above reproach. And what does this tell us? That What did, what did Naomi tell Ruth? Bay, Boaz will not rest until this is taken care of. Naomi sent Ruth to Boaz in the dark. Why? Because she knew that Boaz would do the right thing the right way. What do we find in uh, Ruth chapter 4? Boaz doing the right thing the right way. What does that tell us about a person with righteous character? That their character speaks volumes to the people around them. They do the right thing the right way. In other words, they can be trusted. The ten elders, this is to make it legal. This is to, uh, later on, so this would be much later than Ruth in Jewish history, uh, ten, I think it's ten, would make a quorum in a synagogue. And some people will point to that number, but that's a little bit anachronistic for Ruth. Uh, why did he gather ten elders? Uh, to make it legal. And why the number ten? Uh, it's a good round number. It's a, it's a biblical number that we see that represents fullness. But either way, there was a strong contingent of people there. So two guys are not going to get the stories mixed up. There are ten men there, and they're going to witness it. And so Boaz, again, doing what is right, going the extra mile to make sure this stays above board. But you know what else I love? This redemption is public. It's not private. They're not doing anything in secrecy. They're doing everything in public. Ruth and Naomi and their land and their line would be on display for all to see. So you know what that means, beloved? Everybody would know they were redeemed. It's a beautiful thing when we think about baptisms and whatnot. What is a baptism? It's a sign of something God is already doing in somebody's life. We do it publicly. Why? To identify those people with Christ, to say publicly we're in covenant with Jesus. And this was done publicly as a right of law, but I love the fact that redemption is on display. There is no hiding it. But I also love the fact that Boaz went up that day or the next day, and he took 10 men of the elders from the city, and he said, sit down here. There is an urgency here. He is ready now to get this issue squared away. He's ready. He's willing to redeem now. When you see this, how do we know he's urgent? Because all the commands that he gives here, turn aside, sit here, are imperative verbs. They're imperative commands. This doesn't mean that Boaz is somehow superior to the other redeemer or he's superior to the ten elders. What it does mean is he wants to get this done. He's ready to seal the deal, as it were. He's ready to extend redemption. It reminds me of the psalm that is then quoted again in the book of Hebrews. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. When is a good time for redemption? Now. Now is always a good time for redemption. This is a legal process here, but this gets at the larger part of the story. And so, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here, and they sat down. And then 
He said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Now, briefly, I'm going to give you a bit of history. In Leviticus chapter 25, you can write this down, Leviticus 25, 24 to 34. I'm going to read some of this because I want you to understand where this, is, this idea that we've just read about is grounded in Old Testament history, and it comes in the books of the law. So Leviticus 25, starting in verse 24, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of jubilee. In the jubilee, it shall be released, and he shall return his property to him. Now, he goes on to expand on what that means. And so what we're witnessing here in Ruth is a biblical provision of law. So someone struggling could sell uh, their land for the opportunity for other people to farm it and receive the benefit. And the people who buy it would pay them a sum of money that is fair and commiserate with the crops they expected to harvest from that land. And so what Boaz is doing here is something that's completely in keeping with the law. This is something that the law that Moses, that the Holy Spirit through Moses had made provision for some time back. And so Boaz goes to redeem Ruth and the land. And so when we look at this, we can't minimize this idea, this notion that he wants to do the right thing. He wants to do the right thing. He wants to do the right thing the right way. But now keep in mind, Boaz is not just interested in in, uh, getting the land. He's interested in marrying Ruth. He also understands the implications of what that's going to mean. He also understands the implications of what that's going to mean and the actual sacrifice that it's going to mean for him. Because, beloved, I want us to understand something very clearly, that when Boaz redeems this land, he is holding, he is buying this land and keeping it, in, keeping it until Ruth and Boaz have their first child. By leveret law, that first child will not be Boaz's child. It'll be Milan's child, her dead husband. What is Boaz doing? He's paying a rich sum of money for a wife whose child they first have will not be his child, for land that will not go to his family, and for a crop that will ultimately enrich uh, their first child and his heritage for years to come. Now, let that wash over you for a second, because sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. We want to talk about love and redemption. We need to understand that in redemption, someone has to sacrifice. Someone has to give something for redemption to occur. And in this case, Boaz is the one giving. He's laying it all out. He is the one doing the redeeming so that life can happen and a line can be saved. But I want us to understand something. What I love about this picture is what it does for us as believers. Boaz wasn't just interested in the land. He's interested in Ruth. What does it tell us? The Redeemer is interested in a relationship with the redeemed. 
He's not interested in just doing business. He's interested in loving and caring for and protecting and providing for and doing all the things that the redeemed need because the redeemed need redemption because we're weak and broken and lowly and need help. And so what this reminds us of, this picture, is that the Redeemer wants to relate with and love the redeemed. And so that redemption not only relieves a debt, but it restores life. It restores a life that you need, that I need, that they needed. And so, yes, the Redeemer wants to be in relationship, but the Redeemer doesn't want to be in just a relationship at a distance, like the deist would say. The Redeemer wants to be in a loving relationship, living with us. And Ruth and Boaz show us this again and again, as we need more than a settled debt. It's great that Jesus saves us from hell. That is a gift. But beloved, Christian life is more than that. It's not just our get-out-of-jail-free card. It's an invitation to live in relationship with the Redeemer, where He never leaves nor forsakes us. In fact, it's not just even that. It's one step further where, in our case, Jesus the Redeemer gives us His own righteousness so that now we are clothed in His life, in His love, in His righteousness. And so it gives us hope. It gives us life. It gives us peace. It gives us all the things that redemption does for us as individuals. This story goes to great lengths to remind us that redemption is not man's work. It's easy to just let Boaz be the hero, and he is to some degree. Boaz is not the main hero. Boaz is an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. As a Redeemer, Boaz is an instrument. God is is the hero here. Now, I said to you a while ago that the Redeemer, he says, sit here, friend. Sit here, literally in Hebrew, so-and-so whatever your name is. And I do think that the text goes to great lengths to not give his name because we shouldn't assume that Boaz didn't know it. This is a small city and a small clan. Boaz and this guy were related. I think the whole point is to remind us, why is his name not important? Because he's not God's man. Why does he not redeem? Is it just because it's inconvenient? Well, it seems to be from the text. Is it because he's selfish? Well, you could draw that conclusion, but you don't have to. Or is it simply that Boaz is God's man and -and so-and-so, whoever you are, is not? Theologians, commentators love to speculate, and I'm saying you just don't have to. What we can simply conclude is, is that Boaz is God's man, and he will do this the way that God has decreed him to do it. One of the things we learn is The guy at first says, I'll redeem it, and then Boaz says, oh, by the way, when you get the land, you get a little lanyap. Lanyap is a a Cajun word for a little something extra. So he says, hey, you get a little lanyap here with this one, and it should not be lost on us that when Boaz describes this guy, and I think this is a little gamesmanship here, you get Ruth the Moabite, wink, wink, you get Ruth the Moabite with this one. She's not Israelite, she's Moabite, and you know what that means. Um, You know, making gestures of mentioning her ethnicity, because remember, the Moabites are the enemy of Israel. They're not friends. They don't love each other. By mentioning her 
by mentioning she's a Moabite, he's adding a little fuel to the fire as to why this guy might decide he doesn't want to. Now, we can, that may be true, and Boaz may not have been doing that at all. It doesn't matter, really. What matters is, is that Boaz is God's man, and Boaz was called to do God's work God's way. And whatever speculations we want to make are fine insofar as they're not crazy. <laughs> Thank you. A little delayed on that one. Whatever speculations we want to make are fine insofar as they're just not, they're not out there, and some of them are. If we can agree that Boaz is doing what he's doing because God has called Boaz to do it, remember, and Ruth just so happens, this text says, to be gleaning in the field that belonged to Boaz. You get, we get right at the beginning. Who is God's man here? Boaz is. What will he do? He will do this God's way. He will do it the right way. Boaz is juxtaposed against this guy. The guy says in the, in the grand scheme of things, I am not able to redeem it lest my own inheritance be compromised. That's what he says, or something along those lines. Boaz is willing to redeem it. He is willing to lay down his life. And so when the guy says, I'm not able, all, there's all sorts of accusations against this character that you can read about. I don't really care about any of those so much as this is not God's man. We can draw that conclusion. But Boaz is God's man, and this is a work of God's grace. And we want to understand that when we see Ruth, that this redemption is a work of God's grace, plain and simple. I love Boaz. I love what he does. But the hero here is God who found Ruth and Naomi, who sent them back home and sent them back to the field of Boaz where they could be redeemed. And so when we look at what Boaz does here, as I've already alluded to, the Redeemer binds the redeemed to himself for forever. We'll even see it. We'll see it in the last part of this chapter. When we come to it, God willing, you'll see there is a reason there. There's a genealogy here, a genealogy that leads us right to David. A genealogy that leads us on, or leads us on from David to Jesus. Now, the writer of Ruth, I'm not assuming they could see all in, so they definitely understood that the connection to David was important. And we understand that the connection to David is important because this connects Ruth to Jesus. And so there is a larger picture of redemption being woven here that we need to pay attention to when we'll come there eventually. But what Boaz, what Boaz does for Ruth is gives her a home, gives her a life, gives her a name, gives her all the things that Naomi prayed she would have, gives her peace, gives her rest, gives her fullness. But here's the thing. This is the beauty of redemption. Boaz redeems Ruth totally in keeping with the law. The law is rich. The law is beautiful. The law is righteous. And by virtue of the giving of the law, Ruth finds hope in redemption. Beloved, yeah, we need to understand that the law points out things about us that we don't love. The law points out our own selfishness. The law points out ways in which we fail. When we take the mirror of the law and we put it against ourselves, we can see I've been guilty of coveting. I've been guilty of bearing false witness. I've been guilty of all manner of different things of not keeping the Lord as primary and yet, in that very same law that brings conviction, brings the means for transformation, which is redemption. Boaz did that for Ruth. God does it for us. 
because Boaz, as I said a moment ago, gave her all those things. What has Christ done for us? Christ has given us His name. He's given us His life for our life. And we are kept not because we keep His law, but because we are redeemed. And so this lays out this beautiful picture of what it means to be broken, to be lost, to be needy, but then to be found, to be healed, to be made whole, and to be provided for. If all we ever see from this book is that, and we get a glimpse of what does it mean to be redeemed and to be the redeemed, and it's not just God gets us out of jail, but He gives us a life, He gives us a home, He gives us a name, He gives us worth. He gives us value. He says, you're not your own. And beloved, that is a beautiful gift from the Lord. And so, as I alluded to earlier, redemption does not supersede or stand outside God's law. It is God's plan from the beginning. Ephesians 1, again, Paul says we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. He is saying something deeply moving about us and about God. God called us as his people, knowing that we would be hurt, broken, lost, in need through Christ. We were chosen before the found or chosen in him, that is in Jesus, before the foundation of the world. Warts and all, neediness and all, brokenness and all, that we might be found and made whole. So what does redemption do? What did it do for Ruth? Not that I think Ruth had much pride left, but what does redemption do for us? Well, it empties us of those prides, of those things that make us look at ourselves as if we're all we need, if we're strong enough. It empties us of self-sufficiency. It empties us, or it should, of self-glory because it means that we are needy, that we are destitute, that we are unable in ourselves to provide what we need, and we need a Redeemer. So when God reveals himself or has revealed himself in the law, he made a way for us to come to him through Jesus. So when we think about redemption, it is God's yes and amen to his people. It is the note of hope to those who are hopeless. It is the sound of help to those who are helpless. It is the sound of wholeness to those who are broken. Jesus says yes and amen to the redemption of the Father. And the hope and the goal is that every person in this room would know that, believe that, and live their lives just like that's true because the world is coming at us, guns blazing. How will we stand in a culture where each does what is right in his own eyes? We stand on the objective truth of the Word of God, and we say, here I stand, I can do no other. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word this morning and its power, the rich beauty that lies therein, and oh, God, just for the beauty and ripple effect of redemption. Uh, I become speechless when I remember what it was like to be lost in sin and to be captured by your love, not because of some grand life I lived, but because you are gracious and merciful and you and your mercy said, this one's mine. All the redeemed who hear 
your word, Father, know the beauty and the joy of hearing this one is mine. And so, God, I pray in my heart of hearts that we would believe that, that as Satan comes against us, that we would remind him that we are the redeemed. Father, help us to know it, help us to live it, and help us to believe it. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.